0: You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. Well, good morning, church. How are we? great if you have your bibles would you open to romans chapter 4 romans 4 is our text for today Uh, i pray that you have already had a start to a great week as we look at this day as the first day of of thanksgiving weekend and no doubt it is going to be a great week for so so many people but hopefully hopefully as we dive into god's word today it is even greater still Um, So, when when we jump into today, we we only have about 17 verses to cover, uh, and that may seem like a lot to you, but I promise you, in the grand scheme, it is is a very small amount, but they are jam-packed with great things this morning. Last week, we finally got to the good stuff. We finally got to, to the joyful part of this letter. We talked about some big words and their definitions. We talked about justification. That's that moment in time where, where a person moves from unrighteous before God to righteous. And, and that, that's a definite moment in time. Uh, it is a, a judiciary word. It is, it is when the judge brings down the gavel and, and in whatever decree it is, is made into law. And so this idea of justification... Salvation happens in a moment. Last week, we also talked about uh, a couple of other words propitiation and expiation. Uh, we're not going to bring the graphic back up on the screen, but hopefully, you remembered. Propitiation is this idea that Christ goes to the Father on our behalf. And it's in that moment that He atones for our sin. So, propitiation, He goes and He takes the wrath that we deserve. We, we also described it a little bit like scorched earth. The safest place to be in a burning forest is in a place that's already been burned because there is no fuel to go around it, so therefore you are ultimately always safe. That's propitiation. Then the effect of that is expiation. That's what happens to your sin because of what Christ has done. As far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says, that our sin is forgiven. Now, a lot of big words— You just got about a half a seminary's class worth of information right there. Today, hopefully, is a little bit different. As we look at what today holds, I think we're going to fall in two different camps, okay? And both are going to be okay, but I want you to understand there's a greater divide in this room and online right now than you would care to know. Because something you're going to hear today, this this idea of of how and when justification, when salvation takes place in our life, what needs to, to go before that? What follows that? There are going to be some of you in this room that say, well, Josh, I knew that. Why would you even bother spending a sermon speaking about that? But there are going to be people in this room, and I think it's going to be a vast majority, who would say, I don't know if I've ever heard that before. Or at least... I don't know if I've ever heard it like that before. Now to be clear, as a pastor, our goal is never, ever, ever, ever to give you new information. That's not our goal. Hopefully anything that we say is something you've already had the opportunity to read. If you ever sit under a pastor and he's giving you brand new insight to the scriptures that nobody else has come up with and he is the only person that's ever done that. Go ahead and throw that yellow flag up, okay? We, we need to go ahead and review what's going on here. So, so again, none of this is new. But for whatever reason, in the state of our theological understanding, particularly in the Baptist faith in which we all live, many of us are going to hear something today and say, is that, is that true? Because hear me out. When we hear this and apply it rightly, it will absolutely set you free. And so that's our hope today as we journey through this text. I know I'm giving it a lot of weight, and and, and it's not to me. It's not even to my explanation. It is truly just to what the Word of God is saying, okay? So as we are journeying through this together, we remember that the Apostle Paul ended chapter 3 with a pretty big statement. And it was great news from just about everybody in this room and watching online right now. Here is a statement, God uh, God is the God of both the Jew and the Gentile. What is a Gentile? Anybody who is not a Jew, that is us. So no doubt, when the reader heard this, first century reader would have heard that statement, there would have been mixed emotions. Gentiles would have rejoiced and said, finally, somebody has said what we've always known to be true. And the Jews would have probably read this letter and scrunched their nose. You ever read something that you didn't like and you went, it would, it would be a lot like that. Some, something in them, it didn't sit right, this can't be right, So to give more clarity to this wonderful truth, Paul is going to bring to the forefront of the reader's mind two really big names. First, he's going to use the name of Abraham. Abraham was the father of God's chosen people. The Jews would say, he is our father. We are in his lineage. Of course, we love Abraham. And then Paul is going to bring up the name of the greatest earthly king to ever live, according to them, and it would be King David. And so, what he is about to say is 100% life-altering, if rightly understood and rightly applied, for them and for us. So, with that being said, let's jump in. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. All right, so, pretty, pretty big statement just in that sentence. What did Abraham have to do before he was justified by God? That's the question. What did he have to do before he is saved in in essence? All right. Not only did he not do anything to be justified before God, but he did a lot of things to not be justified. You know, for whatever reason, maybe it's because it's, it's really just a sentence in Joshua that tells us the backstory of Abram. Maybe we just don't read all the way through the book of Joshua or maybe we just don't know this nugget of truth. Maybe we just assume that Abraham was just a great guy and God watches him on this earth and looks down and says, Abram, i got to have you on the team. You are a good man. You have great potential. Do you know what Abram was doing when God called his name? He was a pagan, doing pagan things. Abram was with his dad, Joshua 24 tells us worshiping other gods. Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, and the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. So not only did they worship them, but they served them. All right, so Abram is a pagan doing pagan things. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so it wasn't Abraham's works that saved him. It was his faith. His belief in God and his promises that God made to him is what saved him. Now, more to the meaning of belief in and faith as we journey through this letter. Uh, I want to warn you, probably a lot like last week, when we work through these letters and, and we start to look at big words and the implications of them, you're probably going to leave with more questions than you came in with. Remember, this letter would have been read in one sitting. It would not have been picked apart 17 verses at a time to the span of 30 weeks. They would have sat and read it, and they would have a better understanding because it's in their vernacular, uh, in their understanding. But for us today, we need to hold tightly to the tension and know that it's okay. That Abraham didn't do anything. He He didn't go to the tryouts of God's people and show God that he was really good at being a godly person. Matter of fact, he was one of the worst And God called his name anyway. Not only was he a part of a family doing bad things, he was doing bad things with that family. And God called his name anyway. So what was it that brought salvation to him? What was it that justified him before the Father? This is what the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, as his payment, all right? So if justification, if salvation were about your works, then you would get what you deserve. Church, aren't you thankful God doesn't give you what you deserve? Like, like, just think about your life in the recent week. Go back seven days, don't bother the whole lifetime just yet. The last seven days, even as a Christ follower, one who has resolved to glorify him in all things that you do, aren't you thankful God doesn't give you what you deserve? So think of the course of your life. And God seeing and knowing all of that and still choosing not only what you've done and what you're doing, but all that you will do in the future. And God still chooses to lavish mercy and grace to you. It's not according to your works. And we are thankful for that. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I want to be clear here because I think a normal read-through would cause some assumptions. Maybe one assumption is this. So so is Paul saying that we shouldn't work? Is Paul saying that we shouldn't attempt to please God? That's not what he's saying here because he's going to spend a, a lot of this letter speaking to that exact thing. But the order matters. The order matters in which we are aligning our life to bring glory to God and good to those that are around us. That order matters greatly. And so when we look at this here, Paul is not saying that we shouldn't work to bring him glory. He is saying that our belief must always come before our work. More to this really important concept in just a few verses. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, we talked about Abram, Abraham. We're bringing in the name of David to the Jews. These would be the, the big boys. These would be the two guys that they would hold in such high esteem. Now, understand, up until this moment, many of the Jews of this day would look back and say, we, we should commend Abraham for all that he has done. God looked at him for all of his faithfulness and blessed him. And Paul would say, you got the order mixed up. God did bless him. God did love him. God did promise him these great things, but not because he did something first. That's what we look at here. He brings in the name of David, and David also speaks to the blessing. And this is indeed a blessing, something that is outside of our work, and it's all given to the glory of God because it comes from him. The blessing of the one who counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes Psalm 32. That Paul quotes Psalm 32, which is the words of David. Here are the first two verses of Psalm 32. They're recorded in your Bible in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, who, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All right, so, so Paul brings up King David, quotes Psalm 32, verses one and two. And without spending too much time here, I think we could all agree on this. David was a guy who knew a thing or two about God's forgiveness. What a blessed thought. That God knows everything and sees everything about your life, but in his mercy and grace grants forgiveness to you because of the sacrifice that someone else made on your behalf. If you're curious and maybe you're not new, uh, or maybe you are new to church, maybe new to the scriptures and you don't quite know the story that I'm speaking about, go back and read the account of David and Bathsheba. Go back and read what happens in that wickedness, in that moment that David should be killed. The king should die because of his sin, but God and his grace brought forgiveness. And that is what we see here in the quoting of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and your Bible in verse 7 and 8. So, verse 9, so is this blessing only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Uh, Again, we use language here that that maybe is, is a little bit different. Is that blessing only reserved for the Jewish people? Or is it also for the Gentile as well? Is is it for the people who grew up knowing what God's word says and knowing the history of who God is and what he calls his people to be? Or is that blessing also for people who have no clue about who God is, but they are being brought up to speed quickly? Who gets this blessing? This is a really big question for us, guys. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness so that's the end of verse 9 so here's the big question of the morning and honestly this is the biggest question of our life verse 10 how then was it counted to him was it before or after he was circumcised how another way to hear that when did abram get saved When did Abram go from unrighteous to righteous? Was it before or after he received the sign of covenant? Was it before or after he went to the Father on behalf of the covenant made and said, I'm going to keep a portion of the bargain that you have made towards me? Here's Paul's response. The end of verse 10. It was not after, but before. This is really big. Again, some of you in the room are going to say, "Uh, of course, this is how it goes. This is the order. This is what I've always been taught. But there's some of us in this room who you still believe that it's what you've done that God loves you now. And that may not sound bad, but the other side of that coin is wicked to you. Because if you believe it's what you've done that makes God love you, you're also going to believe it's what you've done that makes him hate you. And here's the issue with humanity. We do a lot more bad than we do good. So we live with a lot more guilt than we do pride. But funny enough, we live in a place where we like to hide that guilt and shame, and we act like everything's okay. But inside, we are still broken. So we go back to the old broken record self, and we're like, "God, I'm so sorry, I messed up. If you just forgive me, I swear I'll never do that sin again." Anybody ever done that? Just a show of hands. Just me and four other people. Fantastic. Liars, all oh, y'all, man. We repent. We've all been there. How long does that promise last? God, I promise you I'll never do it again. Just forgive me. If you're really, really, really dedicated, I'll give you two weeks. So so when we look at that, this question in verse 10 is one of the biggest questions of our life. How was it counted to him? Was it before or after he did something? He being Abraham. Paul says, not after. It wasn't because he did something, then God loved him. It wasn't because he did something, God made a promise to him. But it was before you want the verses to back it up? Write these down. Genesis, verse, uh, Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and he said, Look towards the heaven, the number of the stars. If you're able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So, so chapter 15, there's this promise of the father of, of Nations having more kids than there are, stars in the sky. Going back to chapter 15, there's another spot where it says, if you could take the dust of the earth and count each particle, you will have more kids than even that. But then you get to verse, then you get to chapter 17 of Genesis. Now, without reading that large section, I want you to write it down, Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Go back and read that. That is when Abram makes the promise to God. This is after, this is after the blessing. This is after the promise. This is after God calls his name. This is after God counted it to him as righteousness. This is after justification has happened in his life. This is what Paul's point is. This is huge. Abraham was made righteous before he was circumcised. Abraham was made righteous before he did anything. You need to hear it a different way for us. Abraham was counted righteous before he was obedient. Now, right now, there is war going on in your heart and your spirit. Yeah, Josh, but but I hear that. I feel the same tension. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says, and more to that in just a second. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why? why? Why keep talking about this word that makes us uncomfortable in church in the 21st century? What's the point of this? Here's the point. Continuing with verse 11. The purpose was to make him, Abram, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. Verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham before he was circumcised. All right, this order makes Abraham not just the father of Jews, but the father of Gentiles as well. The Jew is not better. Yes, he is more blessed. He is the law. He is the oracles of God is the, the sign of the cup. We, we've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. He is blessed, but not better than. The Gentile is not second row. Right. Both Jew and Gentile are saved in the same way. Listen to this. This is going to be something that should be solidified in your heart before you take another breath in your body. Here it is. Both Jew and Gentile are saved the same way that anyone has ever been saved. By God's grace through faith in How is one saved? How are you saved today? It is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. How were they saved in the Old Testament? How were they justified, if that makes you feel better, in the Old Testament? By grace through faith in God. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But there is no law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Who is it guaranteed to? All of his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us. What's the last word? All. Grace, by definition, is God giving us what we do not deserve. That is grace. Mercy is God not giving to us what we do deserve. So it is here that we see in the great grace of God that he gives to us what we do not deserve. We get justification. We don't deserve justification. That grace is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Who is that? Jew and Gentile. Who is that in this room? All of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God and whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. All right, church, this is the crescendo moment here. Right, right here in this moment. This, this is the big section. This is where you want to lean in and you need to hear. This is the promise given to Abram in Genesis 17, 5. Here is that word. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you should be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Please note the verb tense. It has already been done. He is the father of many nations. How is this possible? Well, if you go back to verse 17, there's a little line, line in here towards the end of verse 17 that we may read just in passing and think it means something that it doesn't, but for the first century reader, particularly for the Jewish person who understands Abraham's life and age, this is a big deal. Going back, I'll read it one more time. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. So so his belief is in God. Therefore, he's the father of many nations. And then there's this descriptor of God. It's the second half of that verse. Who gives life, To the dead. Well, of course, we would read that and think, it seems right. There's Lazarus, you kind of did that for him, And, and there's this idea of like we're spiritually dead, but he calls us back to spiritual life, right? But what the Jews would have understood, and what we would understand if we go back and read more closely the life of Abraham, particularly when these promises are made. Abraham was as good as dead. He was so old. Understand what promises were given to him. They were big and they were vast, but what what Paul is saying here is God gives life to those who are, he is going to to bring to fruition something that is impossible. He calls things into existent things that do not exist yet. So as our worship team comes and we move towards this, this time of close, when God called to Abraham, He promised him that he would do a couple of things. Number one, he promised that he would be his God and Abraham would be his people. All right, so at that moment, at that moment of that promise, Abraham was worshiping other gods. He had no history with Yahweh. Abraham was a pagan doing pagan things when that promise was given. Second thing that he promised that he would become a great nation and bless all that he would come in contact with, Genesis 12. All right? When he made that promise, listen, Abraham had no land. There was the promise of Canaan. It wasn't his yet. He didn't possess it physically. He didn't have people, and he didn't have capacity. But the promise is still the same. I'm going to make you a great nation and and you are going to be a blessing to all and it's just him and his wife. Third promise, this was probably the one that most people know. You're going to have more children than anyone's ever going to be able to count. Genesis 13, count the dust of the earth, you'll have more. Genesis 15, count the stars in the sky, you'll have more. He had no kids. So of all these promises... God gives to Abraham before Abraham does one thing. These promises are not based on Abraham's potential. They are based on God's faithfulness. All of that fast talk for that sermon (laughs) to get you to that moment, and I want you to nail that down in your heart. None of the promises of God extended to Abraham were because Abraham had potential. All the promises of God extended to Abraham were extended because of God's faithfulness towards Abraham. In their fulfillment, Abraham is not the one who gets the glory. God is the one who gets the glory. And you may be sitting here and say, "That's heavy." that's weighty no no doubt because this is a question that popped into my heart so i write it down and we're going to talk about it this morning but what if we get our end of the bargain wrong what if we get the belief wrong what if we get the faith part wrong what if we mess it up what what if we just blow it all is the promise still going to be good is god still going to be good No doubt you have already thought that in your mind about your state of God's blessedness to you. God brings salvation into your life by grace through faith, but for some reason we begin to believe that it's something that we did to keep and now it is something that we've done to lose. And there are too many believers, people who follow Christ every day, who fear falling away because of something you've done. Church, listen to me. God knew what you had done before he saved you. And he saved you anyway. So the question is still there. What if we mess it up? What if we blow it? Is God going to still be good? Is his promise still good? If that is rolling around in your heart, and no doubt that it is, and you need some more encouragement today, I'm going to give you one more passage to read this afternoon. Genesis chapter 16. Write that down. It's a really, really important chapter in the Bible. Genesis 16. Genesis 16. If you were to turn there, you would see the subheading, and it would say this, Sarai and Hagar. But I don't think that's what it should read. If I'm rewriting the subheading for that section, this is what it says. Abraham is an idiot, and God is always good. If you know, you know. My man messed up. And God was very, very, very gracious still. Still. we've all messed up and God is very 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 gracious still after all of this comes genesis 17 the covenant and the sign of covenant everything that abram does is in response to god's promises in response to god's faithfulness and response to god's goodness Not to get the promise, not to get the faithfulness, and not to get the goodness. This is the example that Paul is using to help the Roman church better understand their current state and their promised life before the Father. We should apply the same understanding to our life. For us, we're not Abraham, and our call is not the the land of Canaan, and we're not going to have kids that outnumber the stars in the sky. But we have been given the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Adoption into his family and eternal security in our new home, the place where God dwells. That place is called heaven. So when do we get it? How do we receive this incredible promise? In the same way that anyone has ever received that gift from God. Maybe you're still nervous about me using all these Old Testament verses. Maybe just New Testament makes you feel better. If that's the case, I got one more for you and I want you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2. It's our last one, I promise. Our worship band's been waiting 20 minutes for me to keep saying last one. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and following. This is how you receive that promise. For by grace, you have been saved through, what? Faith. And it's not of your own doing. Hey, before you go, it's a gift of God. I want you silently to resolve that in your heart. It's not of your own doing. You were saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. You did not do it. Not a result of works, verse 9, so that no man may boast. It is a gift. It's grace to you. God gives you what you do not deserve. He gives me what I do not deserve. And that is grace to us. How do we receive God's salvation? How do we go from unrighteous to righteous? By believing in Jesus Christ. And that is it. It is not belief in and something else. It is not belief in you try harder to be better. It's not belief in and tithe more. It's not belief in and something other. It is a belief in Christ alone. Do you believe that? Church, I'm telling you, I know across the board we would say, well, of course we believe that. Then is that proven by how you live your life outside of this one hour every week? It's grace. It's a gift to you. It is God's glory alone, and he gets all the honor and praise for it. Well, Josh, time out. There's got to be something that we do. Yes, plenty, a lot, a whole lifetime. But you got to know the order. The doing always must come after the believing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, Christ came to set us free from cold, hard religion. God came to set us free from ourselves. God came to set us free from trying harder to do better. God came to set us free that we may walk in a way that brings glory to him and good to those that are around us. Do you believe that more than just an amen in your seat, but do you believe that as we walk and live with every breath that we have left? What this should do, If rightly understood and rightly applied, and as we continue to read this book together, it is going to be us walking out of here with the pressure off of justification and the excitement of sanctification. Another big seminary word that simply means this, that we now no longer have to fear the wrath because Jesus satisfied that propitiation. That we now get to walk in a way that brings people to the knowledge of who he is by the way in which we live our life and we communicate about his goodness. That's what we're called to do. And you can't mess it up. How's the world ever going to know if you don't go? How will they ever hear if you don't speak? We are a church that believes in sending. We send people all over the world for mission trips. Got an interest meeting today for Kenya. I hope you would show up. But the greatest mission field is wherever you go when the service is over. We live on mission with every breath that we have left because we have been made right before the Father because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Church, would you pray with me as we move into our response time? Father, we do love you and we thank you for the gift of your word. I know there was a lot of information this morning, Lord. I pray that you would help my words make sense in the hearts of all who heard today. For at the end of it all, Lord, we know that we are justified by grace through faith alone in you. In the same way that Abraham was justified, in the same way that David was justified, we are justified. For you are a good and faithful and righteous God. You are both the just and the justifier. And in all of that, we give you all the glory, honor, praise, and thanks that is due to your name. So Lord, I pray that today, as however this sermon has hit us, whether it is just a reminder of something we know and live out, or maybe this is something brand new that we have never thought before, Help us rest in the fact that you know us and you still love us. Help us rest in the fact that your promises, that your justification come before any of our doing. But we will gladly do what you've called us to do because you have already loved us. Oh Jesus, we love you and it's in your name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?